This is an ABC podcast. Do you ever just go up to a random person and start talking? How do you feel if someone does it to you? Because these kinds of spontaneous interactions can actually do a lot for our mental and physical health, and some psychologists say we should be doing a lot more of it. G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. In a bit, talking to strangers, why do so many of us struggle with it? We're going to ask an expert. Also, how good are you at recycling? Because most of us can probably do a lot better. We chat to the young Aussie who's trying to make that easier for us. First, though. Hack. Less than two weeks away from kickoff, the former head of FIFA says it was a mistake to hand Qatar the Soccer World Cup. On Triple Jack. With the World Cup kicking off in Qatar later this month, there's more attention than ever on how much this event is costing. Not financially, the human cost. You remember the Socceroos came out recently calling for Qatar to decriminalise same-sex relationships and improve its record on human rights. And more and more is being revealed about how horrible some of these conditions are. This big report's been released today accusing a company owned by Qatar's royal family of covering up horrific working conditions and treatment of migrant workers, with some of those workers having their wages stolen. Others have died. I want to find out more about what was in this report. So with us now from Delhi is Namrata Raju. She's with Equidem, which is a labour rights organisation behind the research. Namrata, thanks for joining us on Hack. Lovely to be here. Thank you so much. What were some of the biggest findings of this research that you've done? So uh, the report that we have just come out with uh, is actually an investigation that spans 18 months of work. And Equidem's team is actually comprised primarily of uh, investigators who are migrant workers themselves. So the first thing to bear in mind are the difficult circumstances under which this uh, investigation was conducted because, you know, workers really don't have any voice or freedom of association. And uh, I would say the main things that we see are, number one, is nationality-based discrimination. You know, and that pans out in different ways. It could be that uh, someone gets, uh, gets paid less because they are, Uh, Kenyan or Indian or Bangladeshi as opposed to other nationalities for doing the same job. We also see a lot of uh, overwork wherein workers have been sort of toiling away for extremely long hours. And uh, we also see a significant amount of wage theft, which is workers not being paid their wages in different ways. So one example is overtime. Another example could be a worker worked for, say, 10 months, but actually just did not get their monthly take-home pay. Where do the workers come from? Like you mentioned before, uh, a lot of the migrant workers might come from places like India and Bangladesh. Is that where the majority come from? Yes. So uh, all of the workers are from developing countries, really. So we're talking about workers who went overseas in search of jobs, especially looking for, you know, uh, basically better pay uh, Kenyans, Ethiopians, Indians, Nepalis. This is the bulk of whom we're speaking about. And a lot of the workers are actually quite young. So that's the demographic we're talking about. What were some of the workers saying to you while you were doing this study? So workers, as I said, uh, experienced a number of different uh, labour rights violations. 
this ranges from uh, things like not being paid for inordinate amounts of time uh, for the work that they had already been been done. And uh, it also went to sort of physical abuse, verbal abuse, workers saying, my supervisor hit me with a wooden block. So these are quite alarming things that we're speaking of. The Qatari authorities often allude to the reforms that they have made that are definitely welcome. But the big and most alarming thing that we see in our report is that what is on paper is very different from what is actually panning out in practice. So uh, this is even the case with this group, HBK, which is actually owned by the Qatari royal family. And a number of workers that we spoke with actually indicated to us in very clear terms that uh, there are these FIFA inspection authorities who would be coming to these different construction work sites. And um, these workers would actually be put in, in, in different vans and taken away from those work sites so that, uh, you know, they could be detracted from speaking with or complaining to the FIFA inspection groups. Well, I wanted to ask, yeah, how much attention is FIFA paying to what's happening? So there are authorities inspecting the work conditions, but what you're saying is they're not seeing the reality of what's happening. So that is the problem. Uh, the, the good thing and the thing that is promising in this context that we must give credit to is the fact that there have been reforms that came into place. But the big problem is that you can't sort of hide behind those reforms and say that now everything is sort of hunky-dory uh, because our report really indicates that that is not the case. Incredible to think that people are being worked in horrible conditions and they're not paid for months and months of their work and then deported in some cases, uh, you know, back to their own countries with nothing. And it just sounds like a lot of these workers have no voice, as you say, and have really struggled to come to terms with what's happened to them. Do we know how many workers have died? Because that's another issue, deaths related to this work that's been happening in Qatar. Is it going to ever be known how many have died? I know that there has been a lot of back and forth about the exact number of workers who died. Now, the whole point is, why are we having this debate? We are having this debate because the statistics are not clear. One of the big pushes that would make a large difference to workers at this point is to actually start sharing data in a genuine way. So the problem is that as of now, the extent to which that is clear or not is just insufficient. And I'm saying this as uh, someone who has had training as an economist and I'm a researcher. It shouldn't be a situation where the numbers are sort of this contested. I mean, at the end of the day, a worker is not a statistic. Uh, we shouldn't be saying these are 10 workers, these are 20 workers, these are 30 workers. I mean, the whole point is that we should look at these workers and say, okay, first of all, we need to understand exactly the number of workers who have not just died, but what are all of the problems they have faced? Last month, Australia's football players, the Socceroos, became the first World Cup team to launch a collective protest against Qatar's human rights record. How powerful is that kind of a message, do you think? These are the things in life that make me feel extremely heartened. You know, I thought that it was such a wholesome message. 
and uh, so many of my close friends and stuff over the years have been Australian and they always have so much Aussie spirit and I can see why, I can see why. It would go a long way if uh, more football groups uh, and associations around the world were to do that kind of thing because this is an issue that affects us all. You know, we're talking about workers who could have been any of us, really. If we had just been born in a different circumstance, it could have been any of us. I would actually encourage people to just think about what it means, you know, for uh, FIFA to set up some kind of compensation fund uh, to compensate these workers. These are workers who have built all of these stadiums in which we're all going to be enjoying football or watching football. So it's the least we we can do. Look, it's really distressing, but important information and research. Namrata Raju from Equidem, thank you so much for speaking about it with us on Hack. Thank you so much for doing this story. It's a pleasure. Hack on Triple J. And on the text line, someone says, I was in Qatar in 2018 when construction for the World Cup had already started. The working conditions looked horrendous then. And our old mate, Avni Dias, the is the ABC's South Asia correspondent now. She's done a lot of reporting on this report on the working conditions. You can read her full dive into this. It's on the ABC News online page right now. Hack. Both extroverts and introverts report feeling happier when you ask them to go out and act extroverted. On Triple J. Does the thought of striking up a convo with a stranger fill you with complete terror? I mean, for some people, even just answering an unknown number is bad enough. Or are you one of those people who can talk to anyone about anything? Because some recent researchers found there are huge health and well-being benefits to talking to strangers and loose connections. People like your barista, you see them every day, but you don't really have a relationship with them. Is this something you struggle with? Have you forced yourself to get better at it? Has it made you feel better? I want to know. 0439757555. In a minute, we're going to speak to an expert about how to get better at talking to strangers. First, here's Shalala Madora on what this research has found. I can't remember how it started, but we used to have beers out the front, uh, me and a neighbour. Matt used to live in Sydney's friendliest street. Little by little, people would come out and join us for a wine or a beer, and then that morphed into a WhatsApp chat group that became pretty much anything you needed to know about the street. Matt really loved it, and he's still part of that WhatsApp group, even though he's left the suburb. When I told one neighbour that I was leaving, she put it on the WhatsApp group, and, you know, when our our truck arrived to move house for us, um, you know, someone got their car out and blocked the truck so we couldn't leave. Then Matt moved into an apartment where things were a little bit more chilly. There was the occasional high... Then COVID struck and lockdowns kept everyone from socialising in the way they usually would. So Matt and his partner decided to break the ice with their neighbours through baked goods. So we'd package it up in little kind of freezer bags and and leave them uh, in front of everyone's doors with a little note, you know, stay safe. To Matt's absolute delight, his neighbours began reciprocating. One note uh, with some muffins said... I see your biscuits and I raise you some muffins or something like that. Those small interactions made Matt feel a bit more connected to the people around him. So, yeah, it did did add to the feeling of community here. Because for Matt, even the smallest of interactions with other people are satisfying. It feeds your soul every time you, you know, just a, a brief interaction with someone at the dog park or with the barista, absolutely. 
Matt has what researchers from Harvard Business School call a diverse social portfolio. So this is kind of the number of relationship categories of people you talk to. So strangers, acquaintances, friends, family, co-worker. That's one of the researchers, Hannah Collins. She studies micro-organisational behaviour. Hannah and her team of researchers looked at the importance of this varied social portfolio. Speaking in the context of this current work, it, you know, it really is important to kind of have this diversity of relationships. And, and that might look like a lot for a lot of people that might look like, you know, talking to a stranger in a grocery store or reaching out to someone you don't know super well. The research found that having a variety of interactions was a massive indicator of well-being. So people like Matt tend to be happier and healthier because of the way they socialise. It takes higher well-being. So people with more relationally diverse social portfolios um, experience greater well-being, and that's in terms of life satisfaction, happiness, quality of life, positive emotion. You know, we look at a lot of measures. We already knew from past research that loneliness is a huge risk factor for a person's physical and mental health. But it might surprise you to hear just how huge. Particularly lacking... Uh, social connection uh, is a significant risk factor for death, rivaling the risk factor associated with, again, smoking 15 cigarettes or, or less a day. Nick Epley from the University of Chicago gave a presentation explaining that being socially disconnected is a much larger risk to your health than some other public health measures. It's larger than air pollution. It's larger than physical activity and exercise, things we spend an awful lot of time worrying about. Here he is explaining why. And that's because it is a social stress, uh, social stressor. It increases the cortisol uh, level in your, your blood. And if that reaches chronic levels, where we experience this a lot, that can compromise your immune system, compromise your cardiovascular health. Even small interactions, like striking up a conversation with a stranger on a train, can help with loneliness. But the problem is, we're all too chicken shit to do it. As Nick explains, we tend to think that we're going to be rejected or shut down if we try to talk to strangers. We find evidence time and time again in one experiment after another that people tend to underestimate the positive impact that they are going to have on another person and hence on themselves when they reach out and try to connect with others. And yes, before you ask, that positive impact happens regardless of your personality type. Both extroverts and introverts report feeling happier when you ask them to go out and act extroverted. For Hannah, that was a really big deal. She had to walk the walk of her own research, even though it made her feel uncomfortable. I'm not necessarily an extrovert, but I have tried to kind of take this to heart in, in my life. You know, I join like an adult guitar class and, you know, I try to just kind of sit near people and chat with them there and just kind of expand it in that way. And I try to kind of just call up an old friend randomly every once in a while. Matt doesn't have that problem. He can talk to pretty much anyone. People are scared to start a conversation because we don't know how someone else is going to react. But I think everyone's just craving conversation, but we're all too scared to start it. His advice is to just jump in and do it. I say, bake something, drop it off at your neighbours. If they don't like it, meh. What have you lost, apart from some eggs and flour? Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that story, getting a lot of messages through on this one. Someone says, I think it's worth mentioning how these interactions are increasingly only available when you spend money. Oh, not always. Another person says, hey, I'm a barista and I love to have a chat with all of my regulars. And someone else says, sounds a lot like country people. Yeah, country people are well known for having a yarn. There are world experts on how to talk to strangers. How crazy is that? And we're lucky enough to have one with us right now. Dr Gillian Sandstrom is a psychologist at the University of Sussex in the UK. Gillian, 
Thanks for joining us on Hack. Thanks for inviting me. Talking to strangers. Look, it's something... It's something we Look, all... we're doing it right now. We're doing it right now. And I must say, in the first few seconds, it's all going pretty well. Um, so far, so good. Yeah. <laughs> so far, so good. You've been doing it for a while, though. It's something that you learned from your parents. Is that right? That is right. But I didn't do it until I hit my 30s because um, I'm a very much an introvert. And so I saw my dad doing it my whole life, but I didn't think it was for me. And then then something happened and everything changed. And now I'm a bit of an addict like he was. <laughs> so what what kind of stuff were your parents doing when you were a child? And was it did it make you cringe? Was it stuff that you're like, mom, dad, why are you doing that? A little bit. Yeah. My dad just has a compulsion to talk to people. So, you know, going to the grocery store would take three hours because he just had to stop and talk to everybody. So it was kind of annoying because it was, you know, like, come on, what's taking so long? But also, you know, I just didn't understand why he would do it and why people would want to talk to him. And yet over and over, I saw how much he enjoyed himself and how much the people he talked to really seemed to enjoy it too. So you later in life, started thinking, hold on, maybe there's something to this. And then it was an accident. It it was an accident. (laughs) Well, how did that happen? Yeah. One day I was on the subway in Toronto and I saw this lady with an amazing looking cupcake. And so I started talking to her about the cupcake and she taught me that people can ride ostriches. And it just kind of, it was just this perfect interaction. It's like, how did we get from cupcakes to ostriches? But it was just so much fun. And then I was like, oh, okay, I get this now. Like it was just you know, I just wanted to do more there's, after that. There's something to it. And then you studied it. How did your research work? Well, I kind of started by, you know, I had this really great experience and it it, it made me, put me in a good mood. And I thought, you know, is it, is it just me or is, is this something that works for other people? So I, d- I did a study, you know, I was kind of thinking about not quite strangers, but what I call weak ties, um, which are acquaintances, people we don't know well. Um, and I thought, you know, there's people who have that relationship with the barista at the coffee shop where they walk in and the person knows their name and knows what they're going to order. And it just kind of makes the whole thing feel better. So I, I started off by doing a study at, at Starbucks. And I gave people a little gift card outside. And I, the only catch was that they had to follow some instructions. So so in some cases, I, I said, you know, go in and just be as efficient as possible. That will be much appreciated. You know, the person working there is just trying to get through their shifts. So just, you know, place your order and just get in and get out. And other people, I said, you know, try to make it a real social interaction. So smile, make eye contact, have a little chat. And lots of people said they do, they do that all the time anyway. But yeah, and then when they came out with their coffee, I asked them a couple of questions. And what I found is the people who had sort of tried to turn what could have been just an efficient sort of instrumental interaction into something a bit more social were just in a better mood and they felt more connected to other people. Um, So this this was the first study I did kind of looking at how there might be these sort of broad benefits to talking to strangers. Interesting. I mean, I guess that idea that you don't want to be putting anyone else out, if that makes sense. Like what you were saying before about coaching those people saying, oh, look, go in there, be very efficient. That person just wants to do their job. A lot of people must think that when they're in an interaction with someone, I don't want to annoy them. Like maybe I want to speak to them, but maybe they don't want to speak to me. And I don't. And I think that's what I thought when my dad talked to strangers, I thought, dad, no one's going to want you to talk to them. Right. So even when it wasn't me involved, I felt that there would be that judgment. So is that actually real? Is that happening? Or is it more of a case that everyone does want to be talking and communicating? 
I mean, humans sort of have this fundamental need for connection. So, uh, you know, like I think we, I think most of us enjoy having a chat more than we think we will. Um, cause we, we have all these fears, you know, I've done a lot of studies since then sort of showing all the different things that people worry about. And there's so many things <laughs> that we worry about, but then all the studies that I've done, people enjoy it more than they think they will. And, you know, I've been part of some work showing that people like you more than you think they do. Um, you know, so I, I think we just sort of have this really negative voice in our heads telling us that everything's going to go horribly wrong, but when you stop and think about it or when when you practice and try it out, it, it doesn't happen that often. Rejection doesn't happen that often. And, and generally, these kind of little chats are very pleasant. So do you think that's part of the issue, this idea in society that you're the weird one if you want to talk to somebody or to strike up a conversation out of nowhere, that's holding people back, all this fear and, and concern about what might happen? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the, the norm is that we, that we don't do it, except that we do do it sometimes. Like it's, it feels sort of okay. If someone has a dog, it's not so awkward to go up and talk to them. Right. But, or if they have a baby or, you know, uh, where I am, you know, you don't talk to the bus driver so much, but you might talk to the taxi driver. So we have these very nuanced rules that we've come up with about when it's okay and when it's not. And those rules are different in different places. So I think it's a lot more flexible than people think, but we, but we carry around this sort of thinking that, you know, I'm not sure if it's allowed, should I, are they going to be okay with it? Um, but generally people are happy to have a chat. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese speaking with psychologist Dr Gillian Sandstrom about talking to strangers. We've got so many messages coming through on this one. Tammy, a barista, I love all the messages from baristas, says, I've been a barista for years. I've turned it into a game when I have a quiet but regular customer to bring them out of their shell. Pushing those convos has resulted in long-lasting friendships. People just need a bit of a nudge sometimes. Another person, I'm comfortable talking with strangers but also notice it may not be for everyone. And another person says, hey, Dave, I heard you talking about this this morning. So today I went out of my way to speak to the people working at the coffee shop. I am an introvert and it massively improved my day. Dan, that's so good to hear. This is the kind of stuff we're talking about. Gillian, for those of us who want to take a leaf out of your book, get better at talking to strangers, how do we do it? Have you got any tips? I've tried to give people tips in studies and the tip that people like the most is the tip to just be brave, to just do it. So, you know, I think that's a nice acknowledgement of, yeah, we're all a little bit worried about it, but if we can get ourselves to to just do it, that, that we might benefit. And, and the most recent study I did was all about giving people lots of practice doing it. So I got people to talk to a new person every day for a week. And, and that's because just one pleasant interaction it isn't enough. People don't seem to learn from that because I think it's hard to generalize. It might say, oh, well, I, yeah, I had a nice conversation now, but who knows about the next person? They're totally different. So I think we really need to get enough practice that we can learn that the pattern is generally positive. So definitely by all means practice. But in terms of how to do it, I, there's sort of two main strategies that I use to start a conversation. One is to comment on something you have in common. So I think that's why people a lot of times talk about the weather. The weather is a classic example of something we have in common. Or, I mean, you know, if you're in the same place at the same time, that is a thing that you have in common. You know, think about going to a wedding where you don't know anybody, but you're like, how do you know the bride? Or how, you know, you know, you have that sort of relationship that's built in. Um, 
But sometimes I implement that strategy by drawing people's attention to something that we have in common. So I go for a walk outside almost every day, partly so I can, you know, check out all the local dogs and give them treats. Um, <laughs> but I'll be going for a walk and, you know, nothing can cheer me up so much as like watching a bunch of dogs rolling around and chasing each other in the park. So sometimes I'll just point that out, point out happy, playful dogs to some random person who's walking past me um, or point out some spring flowers that are starting to poke up through the grass. So you can bring people's attention to something in your joint environment. So that's sort of the first strategy that's something in common. The second one is sort of like being observant and, and sort of tapping into your curiosity. So I can't tell you how many conversations I've started just by asking someone, what you doing? <laughs> um, you know, so I've seen people who seem to be like, I saw someone taking a very close look at a leaf on a bush. I mean, it sounds a bit creepy, Jelly, and I'm going to point that yes. out. <laughs> yes. And I think you have to also be careful that it doesn't come across as accusatory. Like, of course. you know, you're not allowed to be doing what you're doing. So you have to sort of make it playful and make sure that they can tell that you're just being curious. Definitely. Don't interrupt people while they're reading because that's not cool. But if they've put the book down, you could ask them about the book. Um, you know, so, so, so that's my other common strategy is ask, ask a question question. And did your research show that the more we talk, the easier it gets? Yeah. So the study that I had people doing practice for a week, um, over the course of the week, gradually, um, people became less and less worried about being rejected and more and more confident in their own ability to sort of start and keep the conversation going. So I guess I just want to say, you know, this is something that you can do, even if you're an introvert. I actually think it suits introverts really well because you can choose who to talk to. You can control the situation. You can walk away. And and I think, you know, it can help to remember that it, it really is an act of kindness for someone else as well. Wow. It's fascinating. So practice makes perfect. It's, just go for it. It certainly does. And look, it's, it's fascinating. And I know that so many of our listeners are going to be wanting to implement some of those strategies. They're really helpful. And we all want to be be more connected to the world and the people in it. So we very much thank you for your time. Psychologist Gillian Sandstrom, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thank you. Hack on Triple J. And Matt in Sydney says, I'm pretty confident and often talk to strangers. I've had big relationships develop from these random convos and tend to find that I'm better at connecting with these people and I feel pretty positive after. That's what we like to hear. Hack. The company says it can no longer accept plastic due to issues with its recycling partners. On Triple J. You know, we all want to get better at recycling. I'm sure if you're anything like me, it's the one thing you're always feeling a bit guilty about. But it's actually not that easy. Some new research has shown while Aussies are keen to recycle their plastic, the current system is not working. And this week we heard a Melbourne-based recycling group, Red Cycle, was temporarily pausing its soft plastic collection. Luckily, there are people out there who are working out ways to make things easier and better for us. And one of them is Lottie DL. Lottie is a sustainability expert. She's also set up Banish. It's about helping Australians cut back on their waste. And she's with us now. Hey, Lottie, welcome to Hack. And firstly, congratulations on being named New South Wales Young Australian of the Year. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk some trash. Oh, of course. It's our favourite topic, you know. A lot of us feel a bit helpless when it comes to recycling and doing the right thing. We want to do better, but we often don't know how. Australia, how do we place when it comes to waste? Are we up there with the worst? I don't really want to ask this. Yeah, so unfortunately, we are the fifth biggest creators of waste and we're the 55th 
largest country in the world. So we just consume, 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 consume way too much really for what we, yeah, for the small population that we are. Yeah. And it feels like in some ways we're going backwards, like our recycling rates have sort of been flatlining since 2017. When, what can we do to improve things, to improve our waste practices? Well, I think the first thing is actually not consuming anything. I think that's the biggest thing here. There's been a massive uproar with the news that came out yesterday about the Red Cycle Group. But I think what we can really do is we can consume less. We've been relying on our recycling system too much and it kind of makes us feel better when we do buy something that is made from plastics. We can go, oh, well, I can recycle it. We'll make it somebody else's problem. But now it's kind of going, well, hang on. Why did we need to consume that in the first place? Banish, how does that work? How do people change their habits using that? So we're all about teaching people how to reduce their waste for that kind of everyday person who wants to do something, but they're not going to go and live off off the grid in the mountains and stop washing their hair. They're the everyday person who wants to do something, but they're not going to kind of go the full, full slog. So we're just teaching people those small steps about reduction and making their own things. And I don't know, learning so much, composting, getting your hands dirty, But also, obviously, recycling comes into that as well. And it is a massive topic because everybody wants to do the right thing. They want to put that item in the right bin and they want it to be recycled. So I think for me, what I would be telling people is to look at the back of these products, look at the items and look for the Australasian recycling label, which is actually the most up-to-date system for recycling. You can look at for plastic resin codes. So those are like that little triangle on the back of an item that has a number on the inside, but that actually doesn't mean something can and be recycled. It's a very backwards way of looking at things. So we need to be looking for the Australasian recycling label instead. Oh, look, it's interesting stuff. I know a lot of people will be wanting more information. Luckily, Banish has a lot of information on how people can get better at this stuff. Sustainability expert, New South Wales Young Australian of the Year, Lottie DL. Thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.